Trump University is proud to present Powers of Persuasion with Dorian Gallo, interviewed by John Ward. Dorian Gallo has carved her career in the corporate world. As a top marketing executive, she's risen to a position where she can enjoy a level of freedom and affluence that many aspire to, but few achieve. In the course of more than 20 years, she has lived and worked in the United States, in Latin America, and in the Asia-Pacific region. Her career has engaged her with some of the world's most famous and powerful brands, and today she devotes much of her time to coaching others in business and in the nonprofit field. Dorian attributes her stellar success to a unique methodology for persuasive communication. Her approach has generated consistent results for herself and those she teaches. It is this methodology that she shares with us today. So Dorian, we're turning our attention here to one of the most fundamental skills in business and wealth creation, namely the art of persuasion. Tell us how you developed your expertise in persuasive communication and how you've used it to build your success. John, the way that I've developed persuasive communication over the last 20 years has led me to some successful outcomes in my life and the ability to really have the life that I want. I'm the vice president general manager of a business division. I enjoy executive compensation that goes with that. And that happened not by accident. It happened by system. The way that that happened was a system that I uncovered uh, serendipitously at the beginning of my career when I was 24 years old and in the board boardroom of a billion-dollar corporation with 10 senior vice presidents in front of me and having an, a forum to speak to them about investing in Asia and convincing them that, that was the right thing to do. There are a lot of things that I didn't do well in that meeting, but there are some things I did do well. And those building blocks of analysis and preparation and preparing the packages, I distinctly remember the excitement that went along with getting the packages ready. We bought big Chinese takeaway boxes to put the presentations in, and we were very careful about the materials that we used. And those got delivered the night before the presentation to all the vice president's offices. You know, stack of analytical things that were going into the presentation. It was probably too research-heavy, if you will, or too analysis-heavy. But uh, fortunately, my proposition was compelling enough to convince them that that was the right thing to do. And I was very fortunate uh, that they were coaching me on how to do it better. I remember in the course of the presentation, them saying, so has your boss looked at this presentation? Because it was a deck that was really long. And what I learned from that is how to collapse my presentation, how to speak more powerfully about how to persuade people. And uh, that system developed early on. And over the last 20 years of being in sales and marketing and working on brands like Pepsi and and Coke and Marie's dressings, a variety of global brands, uh, as well as national brands like Sterno, I was able to perfect these skills that I had uncovered early on in my career by accident. What I've been able to do is systematically use those skills not only to build the businesses that I've run or to do sales, um, like at the NutraSuite company where I was responsible for sales, but also to convince people of the outcomes that I wanted to get to, like having an executive job and having a flexible schedule or uh, being able 
able to live abroad um, in Singapore and Australia, or the ability to be able to not only produce the business results, but to do them in, in a way that's my unique business style um, and not having to adapt it. All of those things come from the ability to persuade people that they will get what they want out of the equation. And I understand that as well as being a business leader in the way you've described, you also now are coaching others in this methodology. Can you tell me a little bit about your coaching practice? I can. You know, what I found uh, early in my career is that when I was working on the Asia-Pacific business, uh, people would want to know how I was doing it. How did I get the corporation to do that? How did I get the opportunity to go and develop the Asia-Pacific business, which was my passionate vision to do? And so it caused people to come to me and ask for me to coach them. And in the first instances, I was coaching people on how to get more compensation in their careers or more authority in their careers. And in other cases, I found that people would come to me in startup businesses, someone who was running a graphics company um, who wanted to increase their business and get more sales, a startup company from some folks who had developed a furniture product who wanted to get it into wholesale distribution, um, and nonprofits who wanted to increase school enrollment, um, trying to figure out how you replicate this model to be successful in building uh, successful outcomes. And you've also, by all accounts, been a salesperson in the conventional sense of having a product and having to sell it. Tell me a little bit about the sales part of your career. The sales part of my career was early. And uh, when I went to Asia Pacific, one of the charges that I had, I was running the Pepsi account for NutraSuite. I had 13 markets uh, under my responsibility. And my job was to convince the area managers of the Pepsi organization why they should launch Diet Pepsi, Diet Coke, Diet 7-Up in their markets. Um, I also was charged with running the largest NutraSuite market in the territory, which was Australia and trying to influence Pepsi Australia to do more activities with Diet Pepsi and Diet 7-Up because they were established brands in that market. And that was probably one of the most challenging sales experiences that I had. I remember when I walked into the Pepsi Australia situation, and there were a bunch of men um, who uh, were uh, cowboys. There's a word or a phrase at Pepsi that says, eventually the bullet gets you, they're rough and tumble, didn't have any interest in speaking to a supplier who wanted to work with them collaboratively. And that was my job. I had to sell them on the value of NutraSuite so I could influence them to do more promotional and sales activities, to invest monies. At that time, I remember my first meeting with the CEO of the Pepsi Australia organization, and we were giving them money at the time. And he said, well, I really don't need your help. I just want the money. And I had to convince him that my expertise was going to add value. And it was not an easy sell. But there was nothing more gratifying than being repatriated back to the United States after having lived in Australia. And the senior guy who had originally said, I don't have any interest in having you as part of our team, saying, you're a very valuable supplier who will be missed. And the director of marketing saying, you don't just work with our team, you're a part of our team. And so I had been able to replicate a successful outcome and get them, to persuade them to do something that they hadn't wanted to do in the beginning. And so again, I got an opportunity to really test my methodology and practice. Well, now you've been out there on the front lines of sales with world-renowned brands in a global market, and, and that's quite a track record. Many of the people listening to this program won't be in that situation or anything like it. So there's a question, 
Why is the skill of persuasive communication important in business, even if you're not a salesperson? The art of persuasive communication is fundamental to building wealth. Wealth creation at its core activity is persuading people to give up money. So that is the most essential transaction is getting people to part with money. So the, the question is, is how do you systematically persuade people that it is in their best interest to part with money so that you can increase your wealth? It's the only way that wealth creation happens. And so any aspect of wealth creation, whether it's getting a real estate loan to develop an investment project, which is what my husband does. I see him do it all the time. He has to use persuasion in order to get the bank to agree to give him the money. If people I've coached before who want to get a raise, they have to persuade the boss that they are the right person to get a raise. If you want to get a new job, if you want to place a product at a mass merchandiser, all of those things require persuasion. Makes a lot of sense. So if we proceed now on that kind of thinking, and we have our listener to this program is maybe in many, many different kinds of situation, maybe in a, in a job, as you have been in the corporate world, maybe an entrepreneur, maybe an investor, maybe a homemaker. There are many possibilities. What's a way that the individual listening to this program can make best use of the material that you're going to share with us from this point on? To get the most out of the methodology we're going to discuss today, it's best that you have a real-life situation to think it through from. You need to stop right now and think about what is it that you want to work on? What is the problem that you have? What's the objective that you're trying to get to? What's, what is it specifically? And that will guide you because you'll be able to apply those things that we're going to speak about, those methodologies, on a specific problem that you can be in action on. And so even if you don't have a wealth creation project to work on, like a real estate loan or getting a product in, I'd encourage you right now to think about is there a personal problem that you want to do? Do you want to influence your spouse to do more things around the house? Do you want to get your kids to do more homework? Do you want to get rid of the things in your house and persuade someone to buy them at top dollar? Whatever that issue is or objective is, you need to think about that right now so that you will be able to hear the steps that we're going to take, not in abstract, but against something you want to do in the world. So we have an action step ready here to begin with, which is to, is to, if I'm understanding you right, is to choose one situation where there's a need for me to persuade another person or other people of something, the real life example that I'm choosing as my project to learn the steps that you're going to teach and test them out in real life. Is that right? Th that's correct, John. And even if it isn't a wealth creation or a business situation, I highly encourage you to pick one of those situations because you get to practice. And it's frequently the fact that salespeople look like they're natural born, that they just got it somehow. But what is not seen is that some of the best salespeople are really very practiced at it. It's not like they just showed up and everything went well. They took a lot of time to get good at it. Well, let's talk about that thought of salespeople because I don't think of myself as a salesperson. I think, in fact, most of the people I know would not want to be a salesperson. I mean, some people love it, and I mean no disrespect to those who are. But in order to be successful in persuasive communication, do I have to somehow turn myself into the kind of person that I recognize as the archetypal salesperson? 
most of us, when we think about the sales stereotype, think about the door-to-door encyclopedia salesman, or we think about the car salesman. We think about the persistent, annoying salesperson on the one hand who will not get off your back and, and want something from you and is uh, very crude about it. Uh, on the other hand, at the other polar extreme, I've had the experience of seeing incredible salespeople. I know a few of those people, and one of them works for me and has all of the elements that are aspirational, good-looking, easy to get along with, funny, charismatic. And I even look at him and think, wow, if I could do that, that would be great. But most of us don't have that sort of persona. If you look at me, I'm analytical. Um, I am very much measured about how I do things. And, you know, frankly, that's what excites me about doing this program is that there's a systematic way that you can be successful and not have all of those God-given talents, if you will. It's really beyond sales. It's really about persuasion. So are you saying in that that all of us have some natural talent of persuasion, even if we don't really notice it, that that's a given human quality? Absolutely. And what I would say is that it's you need to ground yourself from the point of view of persuasion in what you're good at. It is not a good idea if you're trying to persuade people to just take on other people's persona to just say, okay, if I'm going to be successful, I need to be that suave, funny guy. Well, maybe that's just not how you do things. That's not what you're talented at. So it maybe it's much, it, it's not maybe, it's much better for you to define what you're good at. And so what I'd ask you to do is to stop a moment and ask yourself, what are my skill set strengths? I just articulated the things that I'm good at, analytical, um, thoughtful about things, logical arguments. Other people that I've worked with are incredible visual creators. I worked with someone in coaching her on developing a startup branding business. And her uh, method of doing well is not verbal, it's visual. And so what we did was we captured some of those skills so that she could leverage her authentic talents to be successful. Because when you go out in the world and try to persuade people, if you're inauthentic, you are using your energy in a way that is not going to work for you and people will see it. So stop, write down the things that you're good at. There's an action step in here. Articulate a group of things that you're really good at, three or four, five things that you're good at, and just hang on to that list. And what you're saying here is that if I identify my strengths and I align myself with my strengths, then I'm naturally going to be much more persuasive once I get into action with this methodology because people will respond to the authenticity of where I'm coming from. Is that right? That's exactly right. And in in the skill set called persuasion, authenticity is fundamental to being successful. So my action step then is to identify, write down, I guess you're saying a written little written list of the qualities that I have, the skills that I have, the strengths that I can use in this process. Is that right? That's correct, John. And even more than that, I want you to take the list that you have of what you're good at, and then I want you to go and solicit input. So I want you to talk to your good friends. I want you to speak to uh, bosses, current, past, peers. Um, I call it being coached by the world. And you want to get other people's point of view of what they see you as good at, 
what your skill sets are, because you may miss something that you're good at. And so it's really important that you take your list and then as another action step, go out and talk to people about what they think your skill set strengths are. And how does that become useful in real life? I mean, for example, somebody telling you you're good at acknowledging people. What difference does it make now you've had that piece of information from the outside? It will make a big difference when we talk about being in the selling situation and later in this tape. It'll make a big difference when we talk about preparing your materials. Because at that point, when you're getting ready or preparing things to take action in the selling situation, you will be consciously leveraging those skills. And so let's revisit that topic when we get to that place. Makes sense. All right. So let's assume then we've taken these action steps. Are we ready now to go out there and then sell what we have to sell or persuade people of what we have to persuade them? You're going to really want to. <laughs> yeah. If you're really on fire to do something yeah. and you found something that is excites you, an objective that you really want to impact, your natural desire is going to be to get out there and want to do it. And what I want to speak to is the steps that are required or how to harness that energy in a constructive way to prepare yourself. The way that you increase the probability of a successful outcome is by doing work, background work, and finding out as much as you can before you're in the persuading situation so that you can more positively influence others. So we've established pretty powerfully the value of preparation. What are the details? What are the steps in this getting ready for the act of persuasion. I want to give one big caution before we talk about this whole series of steps called preparation. There, you'll either fall into one of two camps, John. You'll either be a kind of person who loves to do analysis and can do it forever and is really comfortable there. Or you'll be a person who wants to get ready, like we spoke about before, and wants to go out and do something. The caution that I have to each of those kinds of people is that if you are the kind of person who gets hides behind the analytical part of it. So if your propensity is to not be in action, is to kind of stay back and not do anything, then the most powerful thing that you can do is to give yourself a deadline to work to so that you can actually do something in the world and persuade someone to do something. If, by contrast, you're the kind of person who wants to get to the action right away, can't wait, want to do it, is take that energy and start practicing on people in safe environments. All right, so we've taken that point and we're now ready for action, or we're ready for getting ready for action. So <laughs> what are the preparation steps we need to take? The first step of preparation is visioning and goal setting. And Trump says, if you're not excited about what you're going to do, how can you expect anybody else to? And in this step, what you're doing is you're getting clear on the outcomes that excite you and the future that you want to live into. And so there's another action step in here. I want you to start generating ideas, both general and specific, about what you want to accomplish. And here's what I mean. When I got ready to look at wanting to be an executive and having a flexible schedule, I used Post-it notes in many different colors. And I started writing down one idea on every slip of paper of what I wanted to accomplish. When I was coaching this uh, furniture startup, what we did was started visioning who did they want to sell to? Do they want to sell to Target or did they want to sell to Neiman Marcus? How were they going to do that? And so all of these ideas were we just generated. We had a brainstorming session. There was a group of us where we generated them. Basically, the idea in here is to generate a number of ideas about what you envision your outcome to be. 
What's the power? What's the value in generating so many different ideas? I mean, it sounds exciting, but I can't quite see why that leads to a better result. The reason that it leads to a better result is that when you cast your net wide, when you allow yourself to be freed up, not to worry about the practicality of the execution, you will uncover objectives that are so large and so powerful that you may not have uncovered if you just sat down and wrote down a list of to-dos. So the goal in the visioning process is to cast your net really wide so that you can, maybe even unknown to yourself, find things that are bigger than what you think you can accomplish. Because at the end of the day, you have to think large, and you have to be inspired and passionate about what you want to achieve. It's hard to influence others if you're not enlivened by the outcome. And I'm reminded that Donald Trump himself frequently advises, think big, think big. And he's a magnificent example of doing that and living that. Yeah, if you think small, if you have a widget to sell, or if you have a bathing suit to sell, you may only think about selling it to the corner boutique. Well, maybe you can sell it into Target. You know, if you give yourself the room to be able to think large, you can accomplish more, much more than what you originally may have thought you could accomplish. And again, here's an, another tip is give yourself a deadline. So what do we need to do next? Take your ideas and put them in a visible place. I had mine on my fireplace. I could see it all the time. As I was walking by, I added something new to it that all came to me. I had paper in the car. I could write down an idea when I came up with it. And I put them in a visible place. Well, my timetable came. The end of that step came. My deadline came. And what I did was I took all of the ideas and I put them into groupings or buckets. What I did was develop one overriding objective. And so in, in the case of the woman that I coached, it was to be the vice president of a corporation one day. In the furniture company idea, it was to generate X number of dollars in sales. And so what I did was I took all of this information and distilled it down into one very broad overriding objective. And this is fundamental. The distinction between what your ultimate outcome is separate from the how part. Ah, okay. So what's your broad overriding objective? Take all these ideas and then write down what's the broad overriding objective. Not how I'm going to do it, get into target, but distinguish between I want to uh, sell a million dollars worth of software or DVDs into Target or Walmart. It's distinguishing, I want to sell $100,000 of DVDs. Why is it important to separate the overarching goal from the how? So important to separate those two because not all methods will work. You will fail at some of them. If you have one overriding objective that is unmistakable, you can define 10 different, 20 different, 100 different ways to get to that objective. If my overriding objective is I want to increase my wealth or my salary level, one way of doing that is convincing my boss to give me a raise. Another way of doing that is to go out and get a different job. But if you mix up your overriding objective with your method, you will feel like you have failed after you've gone after the one methodology called convince my boss to get a raise. And what you don't want to do is get stopped because the power of successful persuasion comes from having multiple things that you can be in action on to get to your ultimate objective and not being stopped by it and being in action. So distinguishing these two things is critical. Very clear. All right, so what happens next? So you've distinguished your overriding outcome. 
you've written down, so one overriding outcome, and then I'm going to ask you to list five to ten ways in which you're going to get to that outcome. And we spoke about some of those ideas. And I want you to record these things, and I want you to hold them, because, again, it's another way of holding yourself accountable. So, John, we've figured out what you want to do, we figured out how you want to do it, and we figured out what things that you might be able to leverage. The next thing that you have to do is define what has been traditionally called your unique selling proposition. And that means, very simply, what are you selling? Define it very clearly and simply. I am selling movie DVDs to Blockbuster. And my movie DVDs are great because they're all foreign. Okay. And what is it really specifically? Are you selling yourself? You could be selling yourself. Mm -hmm. And in fact, at one point, I realized I turned my marketing skills to myself. I was on sabbatical for a year, and I was going back into the job market. And I said, what's the product I'm selling? Well, it's me. Uh -huh. I'm the product. So, all right, so so what that I'm the product? What makes me unique? Mm -hmm. What makes your bathing suit unique? What makes your service database unique that you're trying to sell into business-to-business -business environment? What is your selling proposition? What I'm going to ask you to do again is to define very simply what you're selling. So it sounds as if I've got to look at what it is that I'm selling or persuading the other person of in itself, but also in relation to what might be called the competition or the alternatives that that individual might select instead of me, my product, my service, my idea. Is that correct? That's correct. And another word of caution in here is I've seen a number of people shut down when they're faced with a competitive set. Well, what I have isn't that unique. I'm familiar with that situation. I, I, can't, I can't sell that. Um, it, it's not, it doesn't have enough power in it. And so they stop. And so what I would tell you is, is that don't be stopped by that. Articulate it in the best way that you understand it today. Because the process that we're going to go through is going to help you see how what you're trying to persuade people to do is unique from the other things in the marketplace. The most important thing here to do is to have it be a starting point, to write it down and articulate it. So what I'm asking you to do is take wherever you want to record these things, binder, notebook, file folder, document it. What is your selling proposition? You're going to come back and revisit this. You're going to come back and add to it, much like your skill set strengths. Over time, we're going to learn more about this, and we're going to add to it and make it more robust. So we've taken that action step. We've got the unique selling proposition written down. Do we now go and make our pitch, or is there more preparation to do here? Okay, I'm sorry to tell you there's more preparation. Okay. I know you really want to get moving in here. Um, but here's another good um, indicator that someone as successful as Trump says to us. He says, I've made every effort to understand where they're coming from. So, again, why are you doing this? You are doing this because do you really care about having the meeting? What you really care is about your outcome. You want to be successful in creating wealth. You want to be successful in getting to the next level. So in this step, what you're going to do is try to understand your target audience. In the case of trying to sell a product, it's I want to sell my product, my jewelry, into Neiman Marcus. You're going to define who your audience is. So let me take the jewelry example. 
what you're going to do is you're going to find out as much as you can about who your target audience is that you're trying to impact. You're going to find as much out about Neiman Marcus as you can. You're going to go to the internet. You're going to go to the library. You're going to talk to people you know and see if anybody works at Neiman Marcus who understands how they think about things. You are going to call up Neiman Marcus and ask them to send you their annual report. You may, in this phase of defining your target audience, is you may call up the buying group uh, for dresses at Neiman Marcus and ask them how jewelry is complementing dresses that year. Because maybe it's because you called the jewelry department and found out that no one will talk to you there. So you're going to find out whatever you can about your target audience. And you're going to find out how Neiman Marcus makes decisions about how to buy jewelry. Mm-hmm. Who's the head buyer of jewelry at Neiman Marcus? Uh, how big is the buying department? Well, if you're really good at defining your target audience, then you're also going to find out who the buyer, the head buyer reports to. And at the end of the day, what you're looking through this step in understanding your target audience is you're looking for the locus of power. Who decides how your product is going to get in there? What you're trying to understand is who are you trying to influence? And then you're also trying to understand who is around that person that you're trying to influence because you are going to use all of this information to set up your strategy of persuading them to do what you want them to do. So let's, let's stay with this concept of locus of power because this sounds like kind of a, an interesting but very much in the corporate world that, that there might be a power structure within a large organization. And yet, if I'm hearing you right, this could also apply on, on a much smaller scale. I'm thinking of a, uh, a friend of mine who's a brilliant network marketer, and he has a principle when he's introducing his network marketing business. If the prospect is married, he will always only present if he can see both people in the couple because his experience is if he only sees the husband or he only sees the wife, they'll say at the end of the presentation, well, I've got to speak to my spouse. That seems to me a, a kind of micro example of this locus of power that you're describing in the larger corporate context of, say, the Neiman Marcus buying department. Is that correct? That's correct, John. It's not only defining the target audience, but understanding what's important to them or how they get influence. So, you know, again, in your friend's example, they realize that this decision cannot be made between a couple unless both agree. So you won't get anyone to sign on the dotted line and they won't give you their money unless both of them are in agreement. So there's really two parts of it then. There's identifying who we're talking to and there's identifying what is important to them. What do they want? What are they concerned about? What are their anxieties? What do they know? What do they not know? Understanding their mental and emotional world, I guess, as well as knowing who they are. That's correct. And again, documenting as you go. And you want to document these things because as you go through the process, you may uncover something that is different than what you originally thought about what was important to those people. And, you know, a classic example is when I had someone come in to me and wanted a raise. And they thought what was important to me was all the work that they do right now. And what they didn't uncover was that before they came in to make their pitch about they want more money is that I have to go through a whole process of getting approvals in the environment that I'm in. So it's not only important for me to retain that person and have their skill sets and have them be happy, but in addition to that, I have to please my boss. And so if they knew that piece of information, and sometimes you won't find this out until you're in the selling situation, but as much as you can, you want to stamp all those things out and have some ways of thinking about it before you walk in. So what's our action step now? 
Your next action step is to create a list of the people who are around the buying target. So identify uh, two to five people who are around the buying target that you might be able to influence. And then the next action step is to create a positive relationship with some of those people. Just get to know them, get to talk to them, get to find out what's important to them in, in the way that we want to know what's important to our actual buying target. That's exactly right. And the whole way along, the other action step that you should be consistently engaged in through this whole process is documenting everything so that you can learn from the experiences that you're going through. And for that, we can use the workbook, which has spaces in it specifically for this kind of purpose. It's really set up to help the user of this program to keep a record, to keep a documentation of what they're learning and what they're observing. Absolutely. Good. So what happens next? The next thing that you're going to do is you're going to prepare your materials and you're going to rehearse. So you're going to get out your list of your unique talents. And you're, as you're preparing your materials and rehearsing, you're going to think about what am I good at? So the materials that you prepare may be a script about how you're going to pitch your product, um, what is traditionally called the 30-second elevator speech. So part of preparing your materials is maybe getting your unique selling proposition down into 30 seconds. The elevator pitch concept is like I happen to find myself in the elevator with the buyer at Neiman Marcus, and that's my opportunity between the, the 10th floor and the second floor to get my story across. Is and, that right? And man, if you are ready, you can turn on a dime to convince that person that that's the right thing to do. If the opportunity presents itself, you will be ready to articulate your pitch. Perfect. Tell me a little bit more about what you mean by materials. You've mentioned the script. Is there anything else in terms of materials that I need to understand? Uh, yes. For example, if you are going for a real estate loan, part of what you're going to need is a financial package that shows what your P&L looks like, what the uh, payout of the investment project is going to look like. If you want to get a loan from a bank, you need to have a portfolio or materials to be able to powerfully demonstrate why they should give you a loan, what's in it for them. And so these materials can be written. It might be a PowerPoint presentation. It could be a one-page overview on what the product is that you're selling. It could be product samples. All of the things that you're going to use, I, call, I frequently call them the props. All the things that you're going to use, your toolkit, in order to uh, give power to your selling proposition. So again, you just did all this research about what's important to your target audience in the step before this. You know, um, Neiman Marcus, what you've uncovered through your research and your target audience is Neiman Marcus is very interested this season in African-influenced jewelry. And so what you're going to go out to do is you're going to take that research and put it into a powerful visual format. If your skill set strength, again, is visual, you're going to put that into a way that shows graphs about look at the influence of African-oriented clothing in the environment, etc. So what you're basically doing is, is you're getting everything ready around it. You're getting data ready. You're getting samples ready. You're getting presentations ready, all as a way to buttress your selling proposition. So you can pull it out at the drop of a hat and be ready to go. What you're going to do is rehearse. So it seems we have an action step here. Tell me what, what that would be at this stage. 
once you've selected your ways to communicate to the target, you need to actually have your materials ready. So the action step in here is prepare your presentation, prepare your samples, prepare your cover letter to go with your samples if you're going to be sending it through courier, for example, uh, prepare your leave-behinds, uh, your materials to leave behind. You want to get all of your materials ready. That's what your action step is, your physical materials. And so what you're going to do is powerfully practice your selling proposition on people. And you're going to do it in a safe environment. So you're going to practice on your friends. You're going to look at the mirror and practice. You may buy a dictaphone and practice. You're going to just get yourself warmed up, that whole idea of practicing in order to perfect the outcome that you're looking for. And while you're practicing, you're going to let yourself be enlivened or impassioned by the outcome that you're looking to get to. And once you've completed that and you feel really comfortable, like it rolls off your tongue, like you can say it in your sleep, that anybody walked up to you, you're ready with your proposition. Once you're very grounded in that, I'm going to ask you to do the next thing, which Trump says, what am I pretending not to see? So you know how great this product is because you've been practicing it. You've done all these preparation steps and you've gotten yourself ready, but all of these things have been in safe environments that have not challenged you. And that's been with a reason because you can only be persuasive if you are grounded in the power of all of those things that are safe. Now that you are grounded in that, what you have to ask yourself is what are you not seeing? Hmm. And this is a place where the best salespeople imagine what the objections are to the pitch. So you're going to come up with, there's another action step in here, a list of objections. Okay. That makes sense. And frequently what I've encouraged people to do and I've done myself is before I get ready to go and make, I remember I was going to the headquarters office of Coca-Cola in Atlanta. It's like the holy mountain of Coke. And we got our pitch together. And then I took it to the most negative, difficult people that I worked with or knew. Okay, I'm not going for safe now, right? I'm going for who are the people who are going to uh, just hit at my Achilles heel. And I take the pitch to them or I encourage other people to take their pitches out and have the most rigorous attacks against the pitch in order to be able to anticipate the objections to what you're trying to persuade people to do. And the reason that's going to be helpful is two. One is that you're going to be ready for those questions because you've already anticipated them. And two is that you are not going to get flustered or off the mark when someone starts challenging you because that will happen when you're trying to persuade people. And when we get to talking about objections, that is another place where people get stopped when they get in action is the objections, is the rejection. You need to get, start getting ready for people shutting you down. That's interesting because it's probably one of the biggest reasons why many people fear sales, to use the simplest word, is the fear of rejection. And what I'm hearing you say is that it's possible to handle that fear by actually rehearsing the scary experience. So we don't just throw ourselves in the deep end. We practice the rejection experience, the challenge experience in safe contexts. In persuading people, it's really an essential skill set, is to be ready for what will shut you down, is to get comfortable with the fear around it. And because you can get in your own way of being successful, despite all the work that you've done, 
by objections and rejections. And we'll talk when we specifically discuss the selling context or the persuasion context about how to hold the tension, about not reacting. And the way in which you can do that is, and, and I want to put a caveat in here because the part that is safe about this is that you are not actually in front of your target audience to do this. But don't cop out and go to people who are not going to be rigorous, right? Because you can cop out and go to people who are so safe they're not going to challenge you. And that's not what you want because that's not reality. Reality is, is there will, like the cowboys that I experienced at Pepsi, there will people who will want to shred you. And what's safe about what you're practicing is that you're going to people who will want to shred you, but it doesn't matter that they do. Is that clear, that yes, distinction? Yes, it's, it's a very clear distinction and a very helpful one. So what happens next? All right, you're ready to take action. Okay, good, <laughs> let's go. This now is, you've done all this work, you're ready to go, and now what you're charged with is you have all this data about who you're trying to influence. Now you actually have to try to get in the door. Mm. Challenging. I know from personal experience how hard that can be. So, you know, at the very onset of it, you're going to use your materials to get in the door. In the method that I use is I try to influence the target audience in a variety of vehicles in order to get in the door. And what I do is um, I use email, I use the telephone, I use courier pack, you know, getting the attention, cutting through the clutter. And what you're trying to do in this step is what you're really, your goal is, is to get an audience with or get in front of the person who's the decision maker, who is the, the bullseye of the locus of, of power. The idea in this case is to have done work to show the buyer how serious you are, is to use a letter, is to use information about what you know about them, is to use a phone call to not only just say, I've got this product that I'm interested in selling to you, but I'm willing to do this persistently over time in order to get your attention. I understand that, but in my experience in selling marketing services in the past, I've, had, I've sometimes had the, the situation where I've sent everything I can imagine sending into the organization that I'm pitching from you know, phone calls and messages to elaborate gifts and parcels and packages and fun things that marketing people like to create. And still, there's a challenge, and I believe that it's increased in recent years. There's a challenge in reaching decision makers, that people more and more have learned skills to kind of wall themselves in and defend themselves from those folks out there that would like to pitch something. What are your suggestions about how to get around that? It's real. It could be that you do everything that you can and you still can't get in. And at the end of the day, it's people that will help you get in the door. It's a person you're trying to influence. And if you can't get to the person that you're trying to influence, what you need to do based on the target audience that you've defined and the research that you've done is to look for the circle around the influence of power. Look at the secretary, the assistant to the buyer. You look at their colleagues. It's about rapport building with that circle around the locus of power and developing some relationships with that person. And if you look at the pharmaceutical industry, that's a really great example. I see pharmaceutical salespeople, because we have doctors in our family, who do an amazing job 
influencing the receptionists at the doctor's office. They talk to the nurses because doctors are really busy. You can't get with them to talk to them about a new pharmaceutical product. So frequently what pharmaceutical reps will do is um, they'll offer to take out the secretary to lunch or the receptionist to lunch. They'll bring it in if they can't leave the office. They'll bring them samples of things and they'll talk to them about what they're trying to do. And throughout this process, it's really important that if you're trying to get in the door and you're going to the circle around the bullseye target that you're trying to influence is that you're authentic hmm. and that you don't use the receptionist or the nurses as simply a, a stepping stone to get to the locus of power. Because as well as they helped you get in the door, they will help you get booted out the door. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, yeah. The really important tip in here is remember that you have to be grateful with people. And you have to respect that they're giving you their time and energy. And they're, in a way, allowing you to use their influence in the organization to help you. And so it's really important for you to be grateful, just as you would to the locus of power. You treat them with the same respect that you would and authentically. It's in your self-interest to treat these people well because they will tell you about the buying decision. They will give you coaching. They will tell you when a competitor is in there. They may call you up or when you call up the next time, they may let you know something that's going on there that you would be blindsided to. So very, very important that you are conscious of all of those things as you go through the process. So Dorian, it seems we have an action step here. Yes, um, in this case, the action step is to select three ways to communicate with your target. Are you gonna contact them by email, snail mail, telephone, through a second party to get an appointment? So you need to stop and think about the three ways you're going to communicate. I like that one about using the courier. Okay. So before you walk in the door, you've gotten in the door, you've gotten the meeting, but you should ask, what outcomes are you looking to get out of this meeting? So that's sort of something between the appointment, as it were, and the meeting itself. We're really looking at a, a very special period of time where we've got an agreement to meet, and you're saying before the actual meeting happens, there are certain things that need to be done. That's right. You want to be clear about the expectations of the person that you are trying to influence before you walk in the door. That will increase the probability of you getting to a yes or a maybe if you understand what they're looking for. And frequently, they will coach you on what they want to see. And so that helps you take all of this stuff, all these materials that you've developed and refine them in order to be ready for this context for the pitch. And so let's say you've done that. So you literally ask them. Literally. You ask, I'm going to be seeing you a week from Tuesday. Here's what I'm planning. So you tell them, here's what my plan is, what I'm going to cover with you in that meeting. Am I missing anything? Is there anything else that you want to see besides what I've articulated? And I found in situations that people have told me things that I was surprised by that I could then integrate before I was in the situation. And again, what you're always trying to do is reduce the number of surprises, increase the probability of what I call your hit rate or your close. Tell me the action step here. What you need to do is once you've gotten information from the buying target is um, the information is only so good as you actually do something with it. You need to rigorously go back and refine your materials. What I frequently found is that it's easy not to be rigorous and refine your materials. You're, you absolutely must go back 
and take the information and do something with it. Don't rest on your laurels of the preparation work that you've done. Go back and refine your material so you're ready for the call. And that means also getting there early. Very good. So you're in. We're in there. You're in. And we know as much as we believe we can know about what that individual needs to see and hear in order for us to be successful. That's correct. You've gotten all that information. In the ideal situation, you're walking into this person's office. You're having startup conversation. You're checking in with them. You're asking very general questions like, you know, how are things going here? You want to check in with your buying influence and find out what's their temperature. Do they have a good day? Do they have a bad day? Are things falling apart for them? Because what you want to be able to discern is that in the time that you have with them, you want to be able to discern their real objections from the larger influences that are going on around them. So if they just had a deal fall apart, and you want to get them comfortable to talk about this, so all of that thing that's called small talk is important because you want to know what you're speaking into or what your context is. So all that helps you understand where your target audience is. I've been in situations where the buying influence is I had someone who's really reserved and not talkative at all. So I get into the office and I look around. I see what are the books that are on their shelf? What photos do they have? And be observant about them so I can see whether there's a place that I can speak from that's authentic to me. Like if I notice that they have children and photographs on their desk, well, I have children too. And so, you know, part of the opening conversation can be about what's really important to us, which is our children. And in this situation that I had with this buying influence, that was the thing that made the difference. The other thing is is that it allows sometimes for a connection that is unforeseen. And that will help you establish rapport with your buying influence in an authentic way. The other thing is before you actually get into your pitch is to check in. What you're looking for is you're checking in again to see whether there's a difference between what you thought was going to happen and the facts that you have coming in. So maybe they've chosen not to uh, buy African jewelry that season, and now they're off onto something else. Well, you should know that because now you have prepared your pitch all around this. You have to be prepared to put your materials to the side. You've done all this work, and now you're in the selling situation, and you may have to only take pieces of this stuff that you've worked on for weeks. The reason why you do that is is that you care about your outcome. And so you need to check in at the very beginning and make sure that you understand what you're speaking into so you can alter your pitch to the buying influences situation. So assuming that we've got that sense of context, we know what kind of mood we're speaking into, we know what has changed or not changed in the overall business circumstances, what happens next? You're ready to completely unveil the power of what you're interested in persuading people to. Okay. So you get to make your pitch for what you're trying to persuade people to. And if you're trying to sell a new product, if you're trying to get somebody to buy your cleaning service, if you're trying to sell the doctor on a new drug, here is your chance to shine. And what's important is, is that you speak your pitch, provide all of the information. You're using your materials to influence. You're being enlivened by the outcome that you're looking to get to. And you speak it. And in the process, two things can happen. The person that you're trying to influence could say nothing. As you're going through your pitch, you always want to check in. Mm -hmm. You're always engaging them in a dialogue. You want to be in dialogue. When you're 
in monologue, it's an okay thing for a while, but that's not going to tell you about your ability to actually close the sale. So you're always checking in to see what your objections are. Mm -hmm. So you're asking open-ended questions that you've prepared in advance in your preparation process, and you're seeing what they think about your line. And at the end of your pitch, if they haven't spoken or haven't been able to engage them, you're going to start asking them open-ended questions. What are your thoughts about my product? What are your thoughts about my service? Do you think that this product can work for you? I'm trying to get a raise, right? Mm -hmm. So what is it about the increase that I'm asking for? Do you think that this is something that's doable inside of the organization? What do I need to do in order for you to support me in getting this raise? You're going to be asking all of those questions at the end. And this person's going to give you information. When they state something to you, reflecting on your pitch, another essential tool is to repeat what they said to you. Okay. Did I hear you say that my cleaning service is what you're looking for? Repeat what you heard them say because you in your enthusiasm may hear something different than what they said or intended to say. So what you're doing is repeating the information that they've given you. You're checking to make sure your facts are correct and you're respecting their point of view. And you're going to use that as a way to accelerate your getting to the close. One of the things that I'm hearing you say is when, when I'm making this pitch that I've polished and rehearsed in front of the mirror, in front of friends, in front of the most difficult people I can find, I've actually got to be comfortable with being interrupted in the middle of it. In fact, I almost want to be interrupted. Is that correct? That is correct. If you are truly grounded in your vision and your passion about this, probably the hardest thing to do is hold yourself back. And the, what you have to remember is your overriding objective that we worked on earlier, is that what you're up to is not just communicating. You're up to persuading someone to do something. And so in your enthusiasm, you have to understand how your message is being received. Because at the end of the day, if you're in front of the buying influence, there are the people who are going to say yes or no to parting their money to buy your product service or saying yes to your raise. And that's an important dimension. All right. So now we've got into that conversation with them. It's not so much a monologue. It's more a dialogue that we're creating here. One of the things that I think many people who've been in this situation or even thought about it are concerned about is what's conventionally known as the close. How do you actually get them to take an action that gets you the sale, the decision, the outcome, whatever it might be? Frequently, traditional salespeople will call this asking for the order. I think about it a little differently. Again, I'm not a traditional persona. The way that I get to asking for the order is I say, so what do you think about this product or service? And what do I need to provide you with in order for us to be able to move forward? And the reason why I do it that way is I am trying to uncover anything that is going to be an objection to actually closing the deal. And you can still ask for the order. So you're basically saying, I want to sell you this jewelry. Have I given you enough information that you need? And the response usually falls into three different camps. The buying target will say, well, I want to buy it, right? That's easy. Okay. Perfect. Oh, okay. great. I'm going to take your jewelry uh, and no problem. There's a second camp, which is where most of the responses will fall in, which is, well, I'm not really sure. 
I've got to check with what else we're doing. We're looking at other things. This is frequently the place where uh, you can ask, well, are you looking at any other options? So you're finding out what your competitive set is. And remember I said in your unique selling proposition that you will be able to hone it. Well, here's a place where you can find out what you're up against. What other competitive products? And most of the time, the answers will be in that middle space where they're not going to really give you an answer. And then there'll be some cases where they absolutely say no. So the close, just be ready for one of those three options to happen. Yes is easy, but I'm going to talk about that mm -hmm. because it's maybe not as easy as we all think. Okay. In the maybe case, what you're doing is you're asking them for what else you need to provide, and you're going to do that in the follow-up step. In the case where they've said no to you, a no with information is a close. What do you mean by a no with information? I mean that if someone has said, I am not going to buy your cleaning service, and you ask them, well, why not? They will give you a list of things of why not. I've chosen another cleaning service that I've had for 10 years. Now, you know, if you've done your homework, really, that shouldn't happen, but sometimes it does. Yesterday, I just met with a cleaning service. I've already hired someone else. Well, what makes them good at what they do? You can ask more questions. You're always investigating and learning as you go. You're too high priced. All of those things are information that are going to help you make this pitch to somebody else. So again, you're practicing getting better every single time. And every persuasive situation that you're in of trying to influence someone is going to help you get your pitch better. And that's what you're looking to do. So that's why I know with information is a close. Good. So here we are. We're in the situation with the person we want to influence. What's our action step here? The action step as you're experiencing the call is to repeat what you heard. That is actually a very conscious action step, which most people don't do. So I want you consciously to have an action step of repeating what that person said and then taking that information and documenting it. So again, your notebook is a good place to capture this frequently. Um, I actually learned from a very good salesperson who would take information and document it in his notebook, and now you have it for later to go and evaluate how the call went. Good. All right, so let's go to the yes. You said that this could be more problematic than one might imagine. I can't see a problem if somebody says yes. I think I've won. I can relax. What you're looking for at the end of the day is to transact get the, the money in your paycheck. That's what you're looking to do. You're not getting, looking for the boss to just say, yes, I'll get pay you more money. You want the money in the paycheck. Or you want the money for the product that you've sold. Or you want the loan to close. So it's incumbent upon you and your responsibility to be rigorous about what does yes mean. And what about, well, maybe. Well, we can't make a decision at this moment. What do we do with that? Um, because that's most of the situations, this is the case in which persistence is absolutely essential. Most persuasive situations will fall off because people just walk away from the pitch and think it's over because they've made their pitch. If they've said maybe, then what you need to do is walking out of there, you need to say to them, when can I follow up with you? A week from now, two weeks from now, a month from now, they may say six months from now. And what you have to do is take that information and act against it. And you don't want to go what I would call dark. You don't want to stay out of communication with that person. So if they've said, talk to me in six months, if you know enough about that buying target, you can send them information about what's important to them. You can send them little notes. You can drop them an email. You can call them every once in a while. You want to be present in their world. And that will increase the probability of you being able to get to a yes. 
some of those situations, again, will turn out that after a certain period of time, you'll get back in and you'll be able to close the sale in the way that I said before. Donald Trump says something important here. I like people who don't give up, but merely being a pest is detrimental to everyone. And I take that to mean know when the game is up. So they may be someone who's not good at saying no. And what you need to do is read all the signals of, oh, no, I don't want, you need to point blank ask your buying influence, are you really telling me that I really don't have an opportunity this year? You need to give them an out to tell you no. And again, when you get that information, what you're going to be able to get is an opportunity to stay in contact with them. Well, you can ask them, okay, well, when is going to be my next opportunity to do that? If you've done a really good job, you will have impressed them that you've done a good job. And even if they haven't chosen you because you weren't the person at the top of their competitive set, you want them to have you in their file. Hmm. And when a buying opportunity comes up again or when the opportunity for a raise comes up or when the opportunity comes up to get a promotion – they're going to remember you because you're going to stay in contact with them. You're going to send them information, and you're going to keep the connection alive. I've seen situations in which a year later, a buying influence will call up and say, there's an opportunity for you to come and pitch now. It wasn't available a year ago. So don't think that it's dead. Maintain an active list of those people you want to stay in contact with because in the long term, you want to influence them. What's the next action step? Once you finish the call, what you're going to do is you're going to step back and evaluate what happened in the call. Did you make progress? Did you not make progress? Where are you in the selling process, in the selling cycle with this particular target? And you're going to use that information because you've collected information in the call that will tell you what's important to your target audience. So that's all you're going to do. You're going to step back. The action step in here is you're going to evaluate how did things go in the call. And there's actually a page in the workbook to facilitate this evaluation process. That is correct. So really, the story is not over when we get to the end of this meeting. Even if we don't have the sale in our hands, this is when the don't give up part really becomes significant because we may have to develop a relationship with this person. Is that what you're saying? That is what I'm saying. It's the people who are consistently in front of the buying influences and develop relationships eventually get up to bat again. So it sounds like there's another action step here. Once you've evaluated where you are, you're going to see the sort of follow-up work that you're going to do. The action step in here is you're going to send follow-up notes to the people that you met with, expressing your gratitude, including the circle of influence around the buying target. And you're going to take the information that you learned by being with them about what's important, and you're going to reflect that in the communication that you send. Your action step in here is to send out follow-up thank you notes articulating it. You're also going to make follow-up phone calls against the dates that you defined in the meeting that you were going to follow up. These are all action steps around follow-up, which I said is so important and so infrequently done. And then lastly, what you're going to do, you finish the call, you've done all your follow-up. The last thing that you're going to do is you're going to now go back to your overall objectives. Your action step in here is to go back and revisit what you created at the beginning in your preparation process of getting ready. And you're going to see where you are with this particular target. And if you're going to sort of invest your energy in continuing to try to close the sale or you're going to put them on the back burner, now you're going to choose another target to go after and to start the cycle of events again. Good. You mentioned very early on in this conversation that in your own career, there's been a process of evolution, of development, of learning. Let's imagine that we've gone through this whole process you've described on our selected project. 
for this learning experience. How do we turn this into an ongoing progress rather than just a single experience? Again, the way in which you've listened and documented through this whole process will inform you. You're going to step back and you're going to reevaluate where you are and you're going to evaluate what you learned. And that's going to more powerfully increase your selling proposition because you will have learned about the competition. It's going to tell you about how good you are at using your authentic skills to be persuasive. It's going to tell you where you fell down. You're going to learn from all those things and then you're going to go out and do it again. So, you know, whether you've been successful or whether you haven't and you've gotten to know is the key to this process is the ability to replicate. And that's why I said at the very beginning of it, what's so exciting to me is that this is something that anyone can do over and over again. And you can learn through the whole process. That's the the piece of holding yourself accountable. I also encourage people to check in on their calendar. Remember at the very beginning, we talked about put your end goal on a calendar. How are you doing? You just finished this phase once. What is the time frame for the next series of things that you're going to do for the next nine ways that you can get to your outcome? Excellent. So, Dorian, is there any last piece of advice or encouragement or information that you would want to share with our listener on this very, very important skill of persuasive communication? There is hope for anyone who has ganas or desire to achieve or passionate about what they want to get to. And so I really encourage you to try this on and see how you can create your own success in the world. Dorian Geller, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening. For the best results from this program, turn to the relevant section in your workbook and begin the action steps. You can also find out more about the presenters in the workbook.